You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 3, Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Our Old Testament reading is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So Father, we confess that we talk too much. We fill the space with words. We fill social media with words. We fill fill up um, the air with our opinions, our takes, our... uh, our attempts to describe a world that is, in fact, as Solomon says, vapor. And so, God, I pray that you would silence us this morning, but that you would silence us with joy. You'd silence us with humility. You'd silence us with, with the, the grace that comes and gives and gives and gives, and that we'd become a people who, who quit filling the air with our words and become a people who listen a people who receive, a people who receive instructions from you, receive wisdom from you, receive all the declarations about who you are and what this world is, thereby ground our lives in something solid, 
your name we pray, amen. This week we continue in Ecclesiastes chapter five. Um, If you're visiting here this week or this is your first time with us, um, Ecclesiastes is uh, an enigma of a book in the scriptures. Um, it's a book that is, has raised all kinds of hackles and controversy and misunderstandings. Um, but what you need to know as you step into kind of the middle of a, a moving train uh, here this week is Ecclesiastes is fundamentally a, um, a book that, that raises the question, where is joy to be found? Um, it, it seems at times to be a book marked by despair by cynicism about the nature of the world and the nature of our lives. In many ways, it, uh, it points to um, a lot of the underlying cynicism um, that is typical of our postmodern age. But at the root, Ecclesiastes is not stuck there. Instead, it is pointing us uh, beyond that cynicism, beyond that um, hopelessness, beyond that um, awareness that this life and this world and history seems like vapor to something that is permanent and fixed and real and is the only possible place where joy can be grounded. Now, the interesting thing about Ecclesiastes is it answers the question, where is joy to be found in one of the most counterintuitive ways imaginable? Um, it, It actually answers this question in a way that flies in the face of of where almost everyone else on earth and in history has sought to find joy and permanence and meaning. In other words, it is perfect for this moment. And it is a corrective to to every other trend, every other philosophical trend, every other marketing scheme out there. It is the answer to where almost everyone believes joy is to be found. Now first, I want to, um, as we kind of lay the foundation of the, the next step that we're going to take here in these seven verses, I want to um, kind of rehearse for us where we've been um, and, uh, and set the stage again. But when I say where joy is to be found, it's important that we all have the same definition of joy, that, that you understand how I'm using that term and how um, I, I think it, it undergirds Solomon's argument and Solomon's take in Ecclesiastes. By joy, I mean the ability to find happiness or enjoyment in the things we encounter and have in this life. So I'm not talking merely about happiness but the ability to have happiness. You see the difference? It's different, if you don't believe me. Um, Here's the question. We spent, mostly my son, but I contributed some, this week putting a new patio in in the backyard of our home. It struck me as I was carrying another 65, 70-pound-ish stone from the truck to the backyard that in all likelihood, my wife and I will not own this house for the rest of time. Like We will die someday. And likely, our kids won't want this house. Not that it's not a great house, but 
And as I'm carrying these 70-pound stones, I'm thinking at first, how much are we going to enjoy this patio, the nice trees over it and lights? I thought there is a high likelihood that the next owner of this house will tear up this patio, will hate this patio, will think this patio is dumb. So they will take sledgehammers or they themselves will reverse the whole process that I endured yesterday of taking these large heavy stones and carrying them to the back of their truck and driving them somewhere else. So the question comes, knowing that, how can I enjoy the patio last night as we sat out there and had dinner? This patio is not lasting. It's going to be gone someday. When we moved into the house, um, the people that we purchased the house from had done some renovations in the kitchen. And I'm sure as they spent money on those renovations in the kitchen and they put up, uh, whatever that thing's called, it's really helpful to you, I'm sure. Had the word 10 minutes ago in my mind. I thought, don't forget that word. A soffit. Thank you, wife. <clears throat> As they put in that soffit and thought that soffit is a fine soffit. I don't know why anyone would think soffit is a fine soffit. But they put in the soffit and thought this is a fine soffit. Little did they know as they paid to put in that soffit that the people that would buy the house within the first three weeks of owning the house would destroy said soffit. So how do you enjoy, where does the power to enjoy a world that isn't permanent, that's not fixed, that um, your great-grandchildren will likely not know your name, that you can accumulate wealth and property, and who knows if the one who comes after you will be wise or a fool and waste away everything that you brought. In a world like that, where things are vapor, how can we have joy? How can we find some fixed place, some permanence? How can we approach dinner last night with chicken and good wine and really enjoy it, knowing that death is coming, knowing that this might be your last meal, knowing that the chicken might give you salmonella, How do you enjoy any of it in a world like that? Most people in the world, including an estimated 535,000 people a block and a half away right now, will tell you that joy is to be found in your own personal sovereignty in a claim that's made about our bodies and about ourselves, in the, um, the great declaration from Eddie Vedder, I am mine. The joy is to be found by building a life, and building a sexual, sexuality, and building a gender, building a career, building the use of money, and perhaps a marriage and even children, uh, of building everything in such a way that at the center of it is your own personal volition and choice and freedom and sovereignty. The only place, the only way that I can find something fixed, something real, 
It's not by looking outside of myself, not looking at a world that is created and there, really there. Not infinitely moldable, but, but there. To be dealt with as it is. No, no, no. The way to find joy in something lasting is to become a real shepherd of the vapor. Someone who can steer and direct every facet, every desire, every penny. The life of your children, your own career. According to your own will and desire. Solomon's argument for the first two chapters of this book is that is vanity. It's vapor. You can't do any of it. And he was better at it than you are. And the answer that Solomon gives to the question, where is joy? Where is the power for something to be enjoyed, to, to be, to, for happiness to be found? Where is that to be found? His answer is the exact opposite answer that most human beings in this world assume. The fact that our consumerist age assumes. Before we step into Solomon's answer, I don't want you to sit here thinking, It's just the 535,000 people over there who struggle with such nonsense of thinking they can shepherd the vapor. There's a Christianized form of the exact same thing in which God exists as a kind of a being with whom you form a contract. I agree, God, to follow some basic rules. And as a result, you will give me what I desire and want. You'll give me the happiness I want. You'll help me avoid the mourning that I want. Um, You'll help me advance in my career that I want. I'll get the job that I want. I'll make the kind of money that I want. My marriage will fulfill me in the way I want. My kids will be brilliant and wise and well-behaved. Everyone will think of me as such a great father as they see my children. There's a kind of middle ground that Christians oftentimes, particularly here in America, attempt. In which a deal is struck with God. That God is quite happy to not keep his end of, by the way. If we do our part, We avoid all the wrong things and we pursue all the right things and we show up at church on a Sunday even though we had to park really, really far away. It was so hard to walk here. If I do those things, then God, he, yes, he can shepherd the wind and he will shepherd the wind in my favor. And so we just take the worldview that that, that Solomon has been decrying, the whole perspective on where happiness is to be found, and we just Kind of, we take one step back from that worldview and say, yes, we all know that only God can shepherd the wind, but we can control God. We can manage him. We can get him to do what we want him to do for us. And then when trouble comes, when mosquitoes come, when Your grandchildren can't remember your name. We 
we accuse God of not keeping up his end of the deal. When we don't get the job we want, when we lose the job we thought we'd have the rest of our lives. We blame God, and in doing so, we find ourselves indicted of essentially adhering to the exact same worldview that most people around us hold, that everything at that park right now is designed to celebrate. I am mine. God, you exist to give me what I want. What Solomon says in chapter 3, answering objections in chapter 4, and then adding to it this week in chapter 5, is joy, permanence, something real. It's to be found in the exact opposite place of both of those attempts to find it. Remind you of chapter three. Step one in your pursuit of joy it begins by acknowledging the good and sovereign reign of God. You, in other words, it is a repentance, as Ryan said earlier, repentance and faith. Repentance from um, your belief that you can shepherd and direct the wind, that you can direct your life to whatever end you think you should arrive at. Repenting of that and confessing or believing that there is a God who directs the seasons. And not just fall, winter, spring, and summer, but seasons of mourning and seasons of laughter. Seasons of building and seasons of, seasons of tearing down. Um, seasons of joy and seasons of sadness. That there is in this world, there is over our lives, there is over everything that is, a God who reigns, who directs the vapor precisely where he wants to. And it's very important that you add this good and sovereign reign of God. Because Solomon confesses in chapter 3, God makes everything beautiful in its time. He is directing all of those seasons together toward the end of beauty. So this begins in chapter 3, precisely the opposite place where we're told we should begin. In other words, we don't begin with our own sovereignty our own claims of control and management of our lives begin with a denial of that and a confession that God manages the wind. I don't. And even in the times of grief, he is managing the wind such that everything will be be made beautiful in its time. That's step one. And Solomon's answer to where is joy to be found? The necessity for joy is something permanent, something fixed, something real, something that has actual meaning and is going somewhere. So it begins with denial of our own sovereignty and a confession of God's sovereignty. And not just his sovereignty, because he might be malicious, right? Right? 
It might be just mean. The reason why you're going through this season of mourning or grieving is because God is really mean. He just wants you to mourn. The confession of Solomon is even that mourning will be taken up by God and wielded for something beautiful. So this week, in chapter 5, we get to step 2. We begin with confession of the sovereign goodness of God. Then in chapter 2, he then turns to us. So remember in chapter 3, we talked about um, that there was a turn that took place in the perspective of the text in chapter 3. Prior to chapter 3, the perspective was Solomon examining his own life, examining all the places that he'd sought to shepherd the wind. Saw that it was vanity. In chapter 3, attention turned from Solomon's activities and Solomon's history and Solomon's own life away from those things to God. And now in chapter 5, he turns back and answers the question, given a world like the one that Solomon's described and a God who governs that world like Solomon describes, how then should we live? And it begins by answering that question in the most basic way imaginable. And then everything coming out of here, he's going to build on what he establishes here in chapter 5 about how to live wisely in a world that is governed by God. So he begins, guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. First thing to observe and notice is he is establishing for us a certain kind of relationship here in the first two verses. In other words, the instructions that he's going to give in the rest of uh, this section of Ecclesiastes are, are all situated in our relationship to God. And he sets it up um, by describing in particular our going to the house of God. Now the house of God um, is a a theme that is developed all the way from creation in the Garden of Eden, which then evolves um, by God's direction into the sanctuary, the tabernacle, which then evolves into Solomon's own temple, um, And then ultimately finds its fulfillment, Paul tells us, in the church. That when you go to the house of God, when you gather in God's presence, there's a certain kind of posture, a certain way of behaving that will orient you to how to behave and how to posture yourself in the rest of life. In other words, what should undergird every single season of life, what should undergird our way of navigating the wind and the vapor of this world is determined for us by what we do when we go to the house of God. What posture we should have there should give shape to and determine and define for us the posture we should have in the rest of life. So the fundamental referential reference point for for how we ought to live and how we ought to navigate the vapor is defined for us here 
by what happens, what we should do when we go to the house of God. Here's the logic of that. If God is the one who sends the seasons, if God is the one who actually shepherds the vapor, the wind, the direction of our lives, of history, of all of it, then how you should live in the vapor will be determined by how you should posture yourself in the presence of God when you gather in the house of God. So what does he say? What posture is necessary for joy? Let's listen to him as he sets it up for us. First, he says, guard your steps. Keep watch over your life, how you live, what you do and what you don't do, where you go, the path you follow. Um, This language is used throughout the Bible to describe um, walking in the steps, the, the Walking according to the law of God, according to the righteousness of God, according to the way that God has instructed us to live in the world. And so he begins with um, this call to take note of, to, to pay attention to how you actually live in the world. To, to avoid sin, to pursue righteousness. Now that may seem Relatively commonsensical. But it's actually really, really important to consider, um, particularly in a, in a kind of Christianity that a lot of us have been raised in and around, in which Christianity was perceived primarily to be something that you know, or something, maybe more often than that even, something you feel. So what was most important about your relationship with God or your religion, for those of you from more Reformed traditions, it was generally, what do you know? Do you have the catechism memorized? Can you get all the right answers to the confession questions? For those of us who weren't raised in that tradition, who were raised raised maybe in more kind of... uh, mainstream evangelicalism. The primary question is, what do you feel? And, and what gets unsaid in a lot of those circles is, so long as I'm thinking the right thoughts, how I walk, how I live is relatively unimportant. Or, so long as I'm feeling a kind of affection or emotional warmth towards God, then how I live or how I walk is relatively unimportant. The main thing is the heart. This form of religion, the main thing is the mind. In this form of religion, Solomon says, when you go into the presence of God, guard your steps. Step one. 
So in a world that is ruled by God, in a world in which God is sovereign, in which he directs the winds, where Solomon begins step two, in light of that, how do you live in that kind of world in which you're not sovereign? You don't control the wind. He does. First, guard your steps. Consider how you live, how you act, what directs the course of your life. Then in verses one through three, He establishes a different, second addition to that, which is marvelous. Listen to this. To draw near to listen, or in order to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. What is the sacrifice of fools? I think he answers that in verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Listen more than you talk. There is a theme in Scripture. Jesus brings this up in his own instruction to the disciples about how they ought to pray. That there is importance, a value placed on not saying too much in the presence of God. Don't fill the air with your words, with your judgments, with your apparent knowledge. Listen. When you go to the house of God, when you come before God, when you go to the scriptures, listen. Be much slower to speak. Learn. Receive. Then verses four through six, he goes a step further in describing the way that we speak. He says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And he gives an explanation, verse six. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. The, the imagery here is um, someone vows to God, something like, Lord, I promise to give you one half of my crops if you cause it to rain. Then it rains, and you discover that for whatever reason you can't pay half your crops to the Lord, which was very tangible in that sense that someone from the temple was going to come because you would make these vows publicly. They would come to your house, and they'd say, great, looks like it rained. You made this vow in the presence of God's people, in the presence of God, Pay up. And you find out you can't pay, and so you you say it's a mistake. Can't do it. Solomon says is don't be rash with your vows. Consider them weightily. Now, there's a challenge for us in this because we don't think of vows in this way. In fact, we don't really think of vows with much seriousness at all in our culture. But, But do you know that when you stand at an altar at your wedding... 
You're taking a vow before God. Don't do it lightly. And don't treat it now lightly. You made promises there. Do you know when you joined this church, you stood before God and before his congregation and you took vows, you made promises. Don't, if you haven't done that yet, don't do so lightly. And if you have, don't treat those vows lightly. Don't throw up your hands and say, it was a mistake. We have elders in our church, and so I speak to you, men. You stood up in this church and you took vows in the presence of God and in the presence of God's people. Don't treat those vows lightly. Don't disregard them easily. But here's another place where we take vows. Do you know that your baptism was a vow? And even if you're baptized as an infant, it was a vow. Covenantal vow made before God to believe, to trust, to rest in the washing work of Jesus. Do not treat that vow lightly or as a small thing. Don't say it was a mistake. Lest God destroy the work of your hands. So we have two big themes that apparently should direct us, should undergird the rest of the way that we approach life that are foundational to our pursuit of joy. First, we should guard our steps. We should keep watch over our steps. We should make sure we don't step off the trail. Two, we should listen more than you speak. Three, You should be very, very careful when taking vows and making vows before God. What are we to make of all that? I spoke earlier of a posture, a way of being in the world that is embedded in this text and will inform and shape the rest of the instructions he's going to give us. It's going to have everything to do with not just how you worship on a Sunday, but, but how you enjoy a patio on a Saturday night, and how you enjoy chicken and wine and marriage, how you enjoy all of life when it's confessedly vapor. The posture at the heart of this text is one of receiving. And, and Here's an easy example using vows. Oftentimes at the heart of a vow is God give me this and I'll give you this. And there can be, not necessarily is, but but there can be a, a kind of posture in vow taking in which you presume to be making a deal with God. I want God to direct the vapor the way I want him to. 
order to get him to do that, I'll give him what he needs. That sounds silly when I say it like that. But I think that attitude, that posture, is at the heart of a great deal of evangelical piety or Christian piety in our day. God needs me to sing. (laughs) Which I've heard a lot of you sing. No, he doesn't. There's a few of you maybe, but not not really. (laughs) He needs me to pray before a meal. He needs me to do my Bible reading in the morning. He needs me to go to church, even when it's inconvenient. He needs me to do those things so... I'll do those things so that he'll give me what I want. And so I make a vow, a public promise. Hey, God, I promise to go to church every Sunday if you'll help me find a wife. What Solomon says is don't do that. The posture at the heart of these verses is a posture of receiving, of waiting, of listening. Not dictating to God the way you think he should make your life go or your career go or your marriage go or your pleasure go or your wealth go, but instead to come before God and receive from his hand, his sovereign and good hand, every season that he brings. Not to try to direct the wind, not to try to steer the wind, not to try to fill up the air with your own words um, that are trying to convince God of, of what your life should actually look like, but rather instead to posture yourselves as a listener, as a receiver, as the one who is always on the receiving end of a God who says about himself, if I was hungry, I would not tell you. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is mine. What can you give him? It's the heart of this text. The the, the heart of Ecclesiastes, really. Is that all joy, all power to enjoy Every season that comes at you, even the hard ones, comes by learning to become a people who've turned away from our own sovereign rule and our own presumption to manage the world how we see fit and become the kind of people who trust in a God who directs the universe, who directs every season of our lives, who directs stock markets and businesses and careers and and, and has fixed the world according to his word to listen, to receive, and to give thanks. That's the heart of joy. It's the heart of Solomon's instruction in Ecclesiastes. For this season, God has brought on my back and my son's back fine patio enjoy it because the next season he may bring take a sledgehammer to it for for this season 
for our season, for our family, about six more weeks. God has brought us children who are a joy. He's clued us in to where the vapor's headed next, and it's out of our house. Enjoy it. Receive it. Don't try to manage it. Don't try to direct it in the way you think it ought to go. Instead, receive it and guard your steps. This is the posture underneath the commendation of Solomon. Draw near to listen. Draw near to receive. Draw near conscious of whom it is that you draw near to. And I want to end here. Do you know before, before whom you draw near to this morning? Whom it is you presume to address in your songs and your prayers and your confession of sin? Read a quote from Annie Dillard. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church, We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Learning to be silent. Learning to listen. Learning to be slow and intentional in any and all vows you take requires that you consider that we gather in this room to worship the God who directs the winds. We worship the God who is sovereign over all things. We worship the God who is power and glory and might, who will bring wave upon wave upon you and upon this world of joy, of grief, of building up, of tearing down, we gather in this room and confess our sins and sing the praises of and eat at the table of the God who reigns and rules and dwells in unapproachable light. So of course, you should shut your mouth. Of course, your vows, your attempts to offer something to him in exchange are silly and foolish. He is the God of all the earth. Do you know whom you approach on a Sunday morning? When we begin with our call to worship, who it is that calls us when we come to this table and eat and drink, whom it is that feeds us. And that's where I'll end. Don't miss the most obvious, the most precious, the most beautiful thing 
in this text. Right there at the beginning. Draw near. This God who directs the winds invites you, nay, commands you. Draw near. And our only capacity for drawing near is in the merits of another. The only means by which we can draw near is in the body and the blood of another. And so he calls and so we come to listen, to receive, to receive with gladness. Let's pray and prepare for communion.